Hello, and welcome to the October 2023 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a description of a pragmatic trial comparing volume control, continuous mandatory ventilation, and adaptive pressure control, CMV. So if you want to think of that as traditional volume control with a set volume and a set flow versus PRVC, auto flow, volume control plus, whatever it is your device calls it, a pressure breath with a volume target. The authors used a sequential cluster crossover design over a nine-week period in ventilated subjects in the medical ICU. They evaluated how many subjects remained in the assigned mode and used mixed methods analysis to identify clinician comfort with each mode. They found that unit-wide allocation was feasible and acceptable. A lot of respiratory therapists and a lot of units have defaulted to a PRVC style of mode because it eliminates high pressure alarms and it helps improve patient comfort by having to, by changing the flow and not requiring the intervention to change the flow to match the patient's needs. But you lose control of, of tidal volume. McIntyre provides an accompanying editorial noting that this study is a precursor to performing a larger clinical trial comparing these two breath types. He suggested in a future study, settings should be protocolized and patient important outcomes studied. Burns and colleagues performed a retrospective analysis of time to extubation in a cohort of subjects with COVID-19 associated ARDS and a group of subjects with ARDS prior to the pandemic. All subjects were managed with lung protective ventilation and spontaneous breathing trials. They found that duration of mechanical ventilation was twice as long in subjects with COVID-19 and ARDS. Patients with improving compliance and oxygenation were associated with a greater likelihood of extubation. Deckert provides accompanying commentary, noting a number of limitations related to the sample size, single center design, and changing therapies from the beginning until the end of the pandemic. And there's some argument that this, the second wave was carried a higher mortality than the first wave and that the modification of treatment with steroids later intubation may have affected the outcomes. He suggests that the use of the metric the authors introduce, instantaneous probability of extubation, requires further study and is a unique aspect of the trial. Miller and others performed a survey of respiratory therapist leaders to examine important aspects of leadership in respiratory care and perceptions of leadership by others. Important leadership skills included critical thinking and people skills. Interestingly, 77% of respondents believed AARC membership was a requirement of leadership. And I think we at the journal would agree. Respondents reported that leadership clearly impacts staff well-being. Volsco provides commentary on leadership in the profession. She suggests that leaders possess an observable set of skills and abilities that create a culture where all grow and thrive. She also points out that poor leadership can be debilitating. Terry argues for leadership training in RT programs and at hospital orientation. The future of the profession requires strong, emotionally intelligent leaders. One caveat about this study is that m almost 50% of the respondents have a master's degree or greater, which may not represent the rank and file therapists working in the hospital. Jones and others surveyed respiratory therapy entry to practice programs at the associate and baccalaureate level, inquiring about curriculum and competency evaluation. Of 370 programs, 37% completed the survey. Information on patient education, curriculum, and competency evaluation was reported by 86 and 73% respectively. Telehealth was rarely included or evaluated. 
bachelor's degree programs were far more likely to include a specific patient education course, evaluate oral communication competency with unpaid preceptors, and evaluate competence through formal programs. Two-year programs were more likely to include simulation experiences involving motivational interviewing. The authors conclude that there are differences in curriculum and competency evaluation at the different degree levels. <clears throat> Pesquito and DeSantis Santiago report on a survey of new graduate respiratory therapists on their perceptions of transition to practice. In a small group, 28, respondents were mostly satisfied but reported facing several barriers during onboarding. Importantly, many identified insufficient orientation to gain confidence in critical procedures. During the pandemic, this also resulted in exposure to negative workplace behavior, feeling overwhelmed, and difficulty with interpersonal relationships. The authors suggest a nurse residency model provide a, may provide a framework for the RT transition to practice. Um, I think over 40 years at the University of Cincinnati in surgical intensive care, and now when we onboard a new critical care nurse, the time they spend before they're working by themselves is actually months. Um, and I think it's it's required and it's important. And there might be a same kind of technique we could use for respiratory therapists. <clears throat> Mail-in and out performed a quality improvement project aimed at reducing the number of routine daily screening radiographs in mechanically ventilated pediatric ICU subjects. A set of criteria were developed to identify patients likely to benefit from a daily chest radiograph. Following implementation, daily screening chest radiographs decreased from 79 to 31% of subjects, a $60,000 a year cost savings. These criteria identified subjects most likely to benefit from a screening radiograph without increasing harm. Villarreal and colleagues performed a prospective observational study of the physiologic response and tolerance to a spontaneous breathing trial in tracheostomized children. In 48 subjects, 60% with chronic lung disease, a quarter of the patients studied failed the spontaneous breathing trial within an hour. SBT failure was associated with a higher breathing frequency, heart rate, and end tidal CO2. They also reported increased duration of mechanical ventilation prior to the first SBT was linked to failure. Uh, I think this makes sense. Patients who are on the ventilator for a longer period of time before they had the first opportunity to wean um, were probably sicker in it, and it's not unexpected that they fail the SPT more often. Katayama and others performed a bench study to compare the bias and precision of continuous PO1 measurements by several ventilators. They compared the, the continuous measurement to the standard occlusion method. They found ventilators capable of using the occlusion method equivalent to a reference technique. Those ventilators using continuous measurement tended to under and overestimate reference value. PO1 is a key indicator of patient respiratory drive. An accurate measurement is important, and the author suggests the standard occlusion method is best. This is important as we look at PO1 as potentially a way of knowing early in ARDS if the patient is working too little or too much. Um, but the measurement of PO1 dictates this. One caveat about PO1 is it ostensibly measures respiratory drive. But in a patient with neuromuscular disease or COPD where the drive may actually be very high, but the muscles aren't able to create the change in pressure, it can be misleading. Gonzalez et al. performed a bench study evaluating the impact of monitoring endotracheal tube cup pressure with different manometers. 
They studied cup pressure measured through the inside of the endotracheal tube during connection and disconnection of the model. So this is a bench study and they stuck a needle through the distal end of the endotracheal tube through the sidewall and into the balloon. The authors conclude that routine cuff pressure measurement might result in underinflation of endotracheal tube cuff, resulting in an increased risk of silent aspiration. This is very similar to a study that was published in Acta Anesthesiologica Scandinavia a little over a decade ago, that when you connect whatever device you're using to the cuff, the volume that's in that system causes the pressure to fall. You've increased the volume, so the pressure is going to fall. So resetting the pressure before you um, reset and disconnect the device is important. Yadav and co-workers evaluated changes in pulmonary function in subjects following hemopoietic stem cell transplantation early after transplant. They evaluated pulmonary function including FEV1, FPC, and DLCO in 900 subjects pre-transplant and at 100 days after transplant. Reductions in any of these three variables, more than 20%, were associated with reduced survival, but not an increase in the instance of bronchiolitis obliterans. The OEDL performed a prospective observational cohort studies in subjects with hypoxemic respiratory failure, receiving high flammulase cannula aimed at assessing sleep quality and risk of intubation. Sleep was assessed with complete polysomnography on the first ICU day. Total sleep time and durations of deep and REM sleep stages did not differ between subjects who required intubation and those who did not. REM sleep was absent in a number of subjects and was associated with an increased risk of, of intubation. And I'll say it was associated, but it wasn't statistically important. Further research into this relationship and possible mechanisms is needed. Um, greater numbers of patients need to be studied to um, answer this question. Tank and others contribute a short report on virtual pulmonary rehabilitation facilitated by a peer coach and homebound COPD subjects. Uh, I think COVID-19, if there's a silver lining, is the increased acceptance of telehealth and telerehab and um, all things tele that allow us to communicate and check on our patients. And certainly telerehabilitation is going to be more important in the future. Hickey and colleagues provide a narrative review detailing the approach to physiologically challenged endotracheal intubation. Joyce Baker provides a year in review on pediatric asthma, reviewing seminal papers published on this topic in 2022. Lee and colleagues contribute a paper based on her Kittredge lecture at last year's AARC Congress, which was one of the best lectures of the meeting, by the way. This paper reviews the use of prone positioning in patients on high flow nasal cannula, as well as those requiring mechanical ventilation. The use of awake prone positioning was spurred on by the COVID-19 pandemic and may lead to changes in the use of this technique in the future. Chapburn and co-workers provide a special article on the assessment of lung recruitability using the recruitment to inflation ratio. And this is an important method that doesn't require fancy techniques to measure how much recruitment you achieve after a PEEP change. The technique, calculation, and utility of this method are discussed. We appreciate your subscribing to the journal, reading the papers, and we look forward to seeing a contribution from you in the future. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. 